Good morning, everyone. If you haven't already done so, would you turn your Bibles to Psalm 139? We'll be studying from Psalm 139. Would you please rise for the reading and hearing of God's word. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me by night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, with darkness as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, They are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of God. Amen. Please be seated. This psalm, Psalm 139, is a well-known psalm to most folks. In fact, my wife and I had this psalm read at our wedding service. And whenever we think of this psalm, we, we think of this psalm, uh, it brings out the, the omnis of God, right? The omniscience, omnipresence, and so forth. And indeed, uh, if you were to go to some seminary today and take a class in systematic theology, you'll find that your professor would take you directly to this psalm and point out the omnis of God, and then do a beeline to God's sovereignty, 
Now, there's nothing wrong with any of this, and it's perfectly accurate to do it. In fact, if you, um, if you go online today, or any day, and listen to maybe five to ten sermons on this particular subject, you'll find that most preachers will take a particular omni of this psalm and then really focus on one of those omnis, perhaps even do like a sermon series on them. Now, I have to tell you, I was going to go down that path myself. But uh, there was something that was just gnawing at me. You know, one of those things that just bothers you. And I kept asking the question, why? Why is our psalmist continually bringing up the character of God and the attributes of God? Surely, they're not an end in themselves. And after a careful study of the psalm, its setting um, and context, I read a paper by Dr. L.C. Allen. It was a sublime paper on this psalm, and it became clearer and clearer to me that there was a purpose beyond just the attributes of God um, being an end in themselves for this particular psalm. So I've concluded that our psalmist is making a case here. He's making a plea to God. And so for this morning, I shall explain this passage and what it meant for the Old Testament believer and draw conclusions for the believer on this side of the cross. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you be with us now as we study it. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to reflect Christ with it not for just this day, but throughout all of eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been falsely accused of something that you never did? How did that make you feel? Especially if you're in a situation that you couldn't provide evidence to the contrary to exonerate you. I remember a time when I was it's been a while, perhaps it was the third grade or the fourth grade. I was in class, and suddenly the principal of the school, a young girl, and a school, the school bully, walked in in the class, and they looked all around the classroom. When the school bully's eyeballs landed upon me, he quickly lifted his crooked finger and pointed his accusatory finger at me and said, that's him. The principal looked at me, and he looked at the little girl, and she also looked at me and looked at him and nodded, yes. If you ever had one of those days when you know that things are just not going to go your way, those were one of those days for me. So the principal pulled me out of the class and took me into the office along with these two uh, children. After all these things, all these years, things get a little hazy for me. But I do remember that what I was accused of was pushing this little girl in the playground to the floor, which led her to breaking a bone, which was in a cast at that time. How did they know that it was me? Well, that bully in the playground at that time was there and believed it was his civic duty, of all things, to be a witness. I never liked that guy. <laughs> the principal was convinced that I did it. We had the broken bone, 
the witness, and now the perpetrator. He wanted me to confess. I told him that I didn't do it, but he cautioned me to confess quickly because at, at that time, the family was not willing to press charges on me. I was scared. I was young. I was dazed. I was confused and later angry because I hadn't done it. I confessed because I thought, being nine years of age, I had no other choice. I had no legal counsel provided for me by my principal, so I confessed that I did it. Have you ever been in a situation like that? I don't mean, obviously, of that age, but I mean falsely accused with a false witness. How did that make you feel if you ever experienced that? When we look at our text this morning, we shall discover that something entirely similar is going on here. We shall see that in verse 19 and following is the climax of the psalm, and verses 1 through 18 are just the prelude. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the psalm, we need to take a moment take a step back, if you will, to define the psalm, its genre, and its context, and see what else and where else in Scripture can we turn to in order to understand this context. There is a category in, um, of psalms that are coined the prayers of the accused. They're called the prayers of the accused. The term was coined and developed by Dr. H. Schmidt. In brief, this category tries to describe a setting of a judicial trial in a religious setting. It's a judicial trial in a religious setting. Evidence for this can be found in 1 Kings 8.31 and following. If you recall, that's where Solomon prays for a divine verdict upon cases brought to the central temple for a religious trial. We see other evidences of that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, 8 through 13. It tells us of situations where there are cases that are too difficult to be heard locally and need to be brought before the Levites for a religious court case. And then one last set of verses, if you remember, are in Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. Now, there's a situation there that requires a priest to administer an oath before God in situations where a woman is suspected of adulterous behavior. That is a religious court case. Now, when we come to the Psalter, there are psalms which contain this prayer of the accused. Uh, when you have a chance, you can read them on. I'll give you some examples, which are in Psalm 5, 7, and 17, with similar pleas. What we mean, then, as a prayer of the accused is when a person is accused of a wrongdoing and is about to go before the courts after a preliminary hearing, appeals to God for protection, justice, and vindication against his or her enemies. Now, Psalm 139 appears to me to be exactly just this. It's a prayer to God by a person who's been accused of something that he has not committed. Having said that, let's take a look at verses 1 through 6 together, our first point, a petition to be cleared. Now, the, the word to know in verses 1 through 6 is used a couple of times and has the sense of to test. 
or to search. Similarly, the word to know is used in most cases to refer to God's providential role as judge. The meaning and usage of this word seems to indicate that the psalmist is under attack of some sort of persecution, and we're not told exactly what it is in this context, but this is what's going on here. It's uniquely similar to Jeremiah, if you recall. He pleads to God for relief. He, he asks God to grant relief against his enemies and his attackers. You see that in Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 3. I'll read that for us. It says, but you, O Lord, here it is, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. And he says of, their, of his enemies, put them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. In this context, the prophet Jeremiah is, is not engaged in contemplating the attributes of God, but seeking justice after he asks God to see if there's anything wrong in him. He is under persecution an accusation of doing something wrong. Now, in verse 2 of our psalm, he speaks, our writer, our psalmist speaks of the transcendence of God, the God who is high above all things, who sees all things. And in verse 5, he speaks of God as one who is close by and engaged in every personal way. Let me take a moment to discuss verse 5, as there is some ambiguity about it. At times it could mean to confine, to hem me in, in hostile sense, as in a blockade. And at times it can mean to protect. So we can similarly refer to his loving care and to his punishment. I think the solution really is not to press it in either one of those extremes here, but to understand it as God's absolute control of the psalmist's movements. God's absolute control of the psalmist's movements. I think this makes the most sense because we're talking in the context of a religious trial. The psalmist is confessing, professing that God is great and sovereign. How can he do anything that is outside of his providential hand? There is nothing that can happen outside of what? God's gaze and power. So when we think about that, when we come to church on Sundays, we tend to be on our best behaviors, don't we? But when we leave and go home, we behave a little differently, as if, you know, God only lives here. Or he only sees things that go on in the church building, but nowhere else. He doesn't see the things that go on in our house. Matter of fact, once we get in the car, he doesn't see what goes on in there too, right? This is really deceptive, isn't it? But if anything, the deception is self-inflicted. The passage tells us that even before my words exit my lips, the Lord knows what they are, the motivation behind them. Yes, it's, it's helpful to, to keep our tongues leashed at times, as Scripture teaches us, no doubt. But with God, nothing is hidden. Not our impulses, not our impure thoughts, not our self-centeredness. I have to tell you, 
just this teaching in a vacuum by itself really frightens me. But we as Christians, children of God, should be comforted by God's compassion towards us. Psalm 130 and verse 3 reminds us, Lord, if you were to count our sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Omnipresence should remind us that God is always there. But for believers, we should remember that not only is God present, but he is with us, Emmanuel. Perhaps what we should get in the habit of praying is not that God be with whomever it is that we're praying for, although that is good, but it should be something like, please remind me that you're always with me. Lord, remind me that you're always with me. That might impact the way that we lead our lives and ultimately the impact that we leave with it. He says of this knowledge, it's, it's, it's too wonderful for me, as he thinks about that. Do you think it's too wonderful when you think about God himself? When you consider the greatness of God, how he knows everything about you, what are you thinking? Even before it comes out of your mouth, even while it is being formed in your head, he knows all things. How God is intimately aware of everything that is going on inside of you. And not only you, everybody around you, everybody around the world. How does that shape the way that you view God? I can't wrap my head around that. That knowledge is just way too wonderful of God and, and the mystery of his greatness. Now, not only does he tell us what's going on inside of you, but he knows where you are all the time. Now, this section begins with a rhetorical question, verses 7 through 14, which asks us, where is it that one can hide from you, or more to the point, hide something from you? And this begins the section on his omnipresence. By the use of a series of polar extremes, our poet uses location above and below, east and west, to show his omnipresence. Now, verses 8 and 9 really don't answer the question directly, do they? But in reality, they confess that it's impossible to hide anything from God. Our psalmist is freely acknowledging that he cannot escape God, and in the context, he does not wish to argue for that fact. He actually makes it integral to his case that God is everywhere and knows all things. Are you guys seeing where he's going with this? Just as a psalmist acknowledges that he cannot hide any thoughts from God because of who he is, we must also recognize that we cannot hide anything from God. Do we sometimes live our lives like that? That we're able to hide things from God? How often do we live our lives thinking that God does not see or that he cannot see where we are going, what we are thinking, 
the motivation of our hearts. I think we often fall into these traps because we live in a world where all of our contact is with other human beings who truly cannot tell where we are all the time and discern our thoughts and intents of our minds and hearts. So we put up like these walls before us, don't we? Right? We pretend to be, we pretend to be happy when we're sad or calm when we're nervous. Confident when we are insecure. The truth is that other humans cannot tell what we are feeling and thinking. But the fallacy in the way that we live our lives is that we think that God is just merely human, and he is not. There is nowhere one cannot be reached by God's presence. Verse 13 often translated as inward parts, is really kidneys. Literally, it means kidneys. And the ancients believed that the kidneys was a place of your conscience. This being the case, we're to understand that God is the one that probes our minds, our hearts, our conscience, and nothing is hidden from him, as we shall see, because he is the creator of all things. At this point in the flow of the thought, the psalmist is overwhelmed, overtaken by the majestic conception of God. This is now the second time. As he's thinking about God, he's got to stop. And he's got to give praise. Do you find yourself doing that? When you just study about who God is, what God is, his character, do you just stop and just are mesmerized by who he is. And you have to give praise. Do you ever experience that? Here he is writing something and he can't help himself. He, he, he says how magnificent God is. So I got to tell you, I, I kind of have an interest uh, in astronomy. Uh, I'm not an astronomy buff per se. We, we do own a telescope. So over the years, whenever my wife and I have gone to bookstores, um, and whenever we've had a little extra time, while they're doing their shopping, my wife or my kids, I'll go over to those, you know, the, the sections where you have those big coffee table books. I'm, a little, I'm exaggerating right now. <laughs> and, and I would always go over to the ones with, you know, the astronomy books, the pictures of like, I have contained pictures of the galaxies and the universe. And I just sit there, and I'll I'll turn page by page, looking at it, and I'll just be mesmerized by the beauty of what is truly out there. I have not encountered one person who's ever gazed into the stars in creation and said, this is pretty boring stuff, or this is kind of ugly. It's beauty. And when you see that, you have the fingerprints of God, and you just can't help but worship God and just recognize how great God is. I think this is what the, what the psalmist is going through. As he thinks through the reality of who God is, he can't help but worship God. And in the midst of all of what? He's in a religious court case who is about to be pronounced either innocent or guilty. He can't help but worship God because he's thinking about him. That's really interesting. Now, at the end of verse 14, our psalmist returns to the underlying theme that he's developed so far, and that 
God's complete knowledge of himself. Not of God's self, of himself, the psalmist. The intimacy of God's knowledge is reinforced by the mention of God's book, in which the psalmist's actions throughout his life is contained. And it's been written. Now, let's not lose sight here. This is very important. But there are legal overtones here, uh, where in which the court sat or was in session, and the books were opened to see the evidence, if you will. Now, there's two passages in Scripture that shed light on this. One is from Daniel and one is from Psalm. Daniel 7.10 reads, A stream of fire issued out and came out before him. A thousand thousand served, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Because that's one example of that. The other one is in Psalm 56.8, where it reads, You have kept count of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Our psalmist is pleading for deliverance. That's what he's doing here. And his mention of waking in the morning, in verse 18, shows us that there is a judicial plea to God for salvation from his accusers. So there's two passages that help us understand the poetry behind the notion of waking and being exonerated. We have to remember, night is darkness and light is um, innocence and, and freedom. Dark guilt. Psalm 17:15 reads, As for me, I shall be vindicated and shall see your face when I awake. I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. In Zephaniah 3.5b reads, Morning by morning he dispenses his justice. So God comes poetically in the light of day to determine judgment of innocence. Okay, having said that, we are see here that poetically the deliverance of God comes in the morning. When he uses the language of waking, he is starting that he is stating that he is assured that God will be justifying him and declaring him innocent. That's what he's saying. When I awake, I'm confident. Why? Because God knows him. He knows what he's done. He knows what he's thought, and he knows the intents of his heart. Now, in verse 16, we hit the credential here. Crescendo, I'm sorry. Not only did God see him in his embryonic state, not only are his deeds recorded in heaven by the all-seeing eye and hearing ear of God himself, God also from the beginning had mapped out his life. From this perspective, we are reminded that we have to conclude along with our psalmist that his life and ours is but an outworking of a divine destiny, a divine providence, the outworking of the will of the sovereign in our lives. Now, why don't you let that sink in for a second? Our lives are the outworking of the divine will. This is not just a matter of knowing. It's not prescient knowledge, but a knowing that is based upon foreordaining. This is how profound and qualified the divine judge is. 
This is how deep the notion runs that God knows the intents of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds. It's one thing to appeal to a being that knows all things, and another to do the same being that is everywhere all the time, but to appeal to the one that has preordained all things that were going to be freely chosen to experience by us, well, he is the perfect witness and judge to call on. Hmm. Now, when we consider the book that contains the events and actions of our lives, every page is filled from the first to the last. We need to come to realize that we exist because God wanted us to exist. And for those whom God has extended his saving grace, he chose to place his love upon you and myself. We should be reminded of this reality that there is no unplanned human being and that every human being has a purpose. Your life, whether you're a Christian or not, has a purpose as well as a destination. Doesn't it feel nice when our spouses, our loved ones, our children, our friends, they think of us? Well, I'm thinking nice things about us. The reality is that there is never a moment that God is not thinking about you. There's not a millisecond that goes by that God is not thinking about you. Scripture says that our Lord is singing and dancing over his bride. That's you. Wow. Think about that. What did I do to deserve this? Nothing. It's all about God giving away his love and compassion to an undeserving people. Now, the truth is that sometimes we have thoughts about other people's predicaments, don't we? But more often than not, we, we don't do anything about it. But you see, God's thoughts are not random. His thoughts accomplish things. This is his sovereign right, and we call it providence. His thoughts are loving and kind to us. And sometimes we don't understand how they are live and, uh, uh, kind and loving because we experience pain, don't we? We experience some suffering. But we must remember that God is accomplishing something in you, for you, and for, most importantly, his glory. This is how the psalmist can say, how wonderful are your thoughts towards me? Every thought of God toward you will be accomplished. With God, there are no random throwaway thoughts. Think about that. We have throwaway thoughts we do nothing about, but every thought that God has accomplishes its end. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, this, uh, this thought is overwhelming and too wonderful for me, our psalmist would say, welcome aboard. So verses 19 to 23 is a natural response, I think. 
an emotional eruption of hatred for God's enemies. When you are so moved by the reality of God's love for you, then you should be moved to stand shoulder to shoulder with God. Anyone who attacks God then is in some way attacking you as well. This is a great zeal for God. Do you you see that? God's friends are my friends. God's enemies are my enemies. And it's simple as that. Are Are you friends with God's enemies? Now, what I mean specifically about this question is not that you're friends with unbelievers, rejectors of God, or even Satan himself, but rather what they stand for, their ways, their lifestyle. Do you pursue the things that they pursue? Do you hold up in high esteem the things that they hold up in high esteem? As we consider the the implication of the psalm, we must consider some distinctions between the believers before the cross and ourselves. The Israelite lived under a theocracy. Before God ended the system of the, uh, the system, this system, by the destruction of the holy temple and the city of Jerusalem, the believer lived under a cultic religious state. We do not live under that regime and do not anticipate being governed that way until our Lord returns to physically set up the new kingdoms and the new heavens. Now, we have the benefit of knowing that we will uh, have our day, whether it is in this life for judgment or on judgment day, we will be exonerated. That should bring comfort to you because we don't always get justice in this life. But it's good to know that there is a God who is watching everything, who is seeing everything, and will exact justice when that time comes. Now, the pre-Christian believer hoped that he would settle his moral scores before his death. That is, his family name and reputation would be untarnished at his death. Another thought that the modern Christian finds confusing and perhaps hypocritical is the misunderstanding of sin as it relates to the notion of the depravity of man or total depravity. You may say, how can I pray, search my heart, and declare me innocent, O God? I'm totally depraved. How can I possibly do that? Well, the misunderstanding is the confusion that arises from what it means. It does not mean that man is as wicked as he possibly can be. It just means that every part of him is wicked and that there is no ability on his part to find salvation in himself. So when our psalmist is saying, test my heart, O Lord, search my conscience, to prove my innocence, he's talking about those specific charges that are being laid against him. So you can say, search my heart, O Lord. Look at my conscience and show me where I am wrong if you believe that you're innocent. It is okay for you to do that. The psalm is the call to God for the individual, by the individual believer in a particular situation whether you're distressed or you're pressured, call out to God in the very same way. Ask God to come and to judge 
and to show, to exonerate you. We can do that. Now, our, our psalmist here is asking for justice, right? He's pleading to God to be exonerated. He is the perfect judge who can judge his heart and come out with the proper verdict perfectly every single time. He knows that this very being who is the creator will find him innocent poetically in the morning. Now, our psalmist's action and pleas are natural to us, aren't they? We can relate to that wanting of being innocent. Who wants to be punished for something that they didn't commit? Do you want to be punished for something that you didn't do? Well, about 25 years after that meeting in my principal's office, I had a visit with my cousin, who is about three months younger than I am, and we look kind of the same, and we went to the same school. And he told me that he had accidentally run into that girl, and she fell, and he was responsible for breaking the arm. Now, let me tell you something. If I knew that back then, I would have pointed him out so I can prove my innocence. I didn't want to be falsely accused of someone else's sin. You see, the psalmist's actions are common to men, aren't they? What is not common to men is for one to freely take upon himself the punishment that others deserve. Hmm. It's not an act of love for someone to insist on justice and to be exonerated. It is a proper act of self-love to protect our good name. Insisting on justice, well, that's normal. We expect that, right? I'll tell you something. This doesn't get my attention. Does it get your attention? It shouldn't. It's normal, right? It's common. That doesn't turn my head. What is love is for someone to step up and knowingly take on the punishment for someone else. We're not saying that the person lies to the judge about committing the crime to get the punishment for someone else. We're talking about stepping up to the judge and acknowledging the other person's guilt but yet arrange and take upon himself the punishment or the sentence for the other person's heinous and unlawful acts. So that person can go free. Now that, you know, that gets our attention, doesn't it? That, that turns my head. That's not common to man. That is an act not of self-love, but selfless love. Christian, that's what Jesus did for you and I. He was an innocent man. The circumstances surrounding our psalmist's life was really a typology of what was to come. It looked forward to an innocent man who was a godly man that was also falsely accused in a religious trial. This man that he would look forward to was also a man who aligned himself with the ways of God. 
wanting to go the everlasting way. He was innocent, but his pleas was not for God to set him free, but for God to set others free. But you see, God did not declare this innocent man, Jesus, guiltless. He declared him guilty on our behalf so that we may be free. What a wonderful God we serve. Jesus did not wake in the morning being declared innocent, was he? Like this man would have been declared innocent. We are declared innocent because of what Jesus did for us. What a wonderful God we serve. What a wonderful Savior that we have that's not concerned about himself, but is concerned about you, who loves you, and dances even now because of you. He is so excited about you being on his mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great love towards us. We ask that you would be with us now. Help us to consider these wonderful truths. Allow us to be filled with wonder for who you are, how gracious you are. As we enter now into the table that does the very same things that reminds us of this greatness and your graciousness to us.